You're listening to Music Ed. I'm Samson Trin. I hope everyone is safe and well during these times of uncertainty. The next few episodes of Music Ed will focus on my final project at Virginia Commonwealth University's Graduate Studies Program. The project is titled, What are the Educational Processes of Independent Authors in Elementary General Music Education? The topic proposal for the research is to conduct interviews with music educators and authors who have written, arranged music, performed, recorded, published, shared, and sold elementary general music resources to teachers in the educational marketplace. Our guest today is Paul Bakeman, a very talented and inspirational general music teacher at Rural Point Elementary School in Hanover County, Virginia. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to start the show with an audio thought journal, which is part of an assignment for my summer course, Introduction to Research in Music Education, taught by Dr. Sandy Goldie. I find this therapeutic because Dr. Goldie encourages to pick a quiet, isolated place to think deeply for five minutes and let the mind wander with no distraction, interruptions, noise, and technology. Here are the topics to think about for the first week of class. Number one. If only my students could or would. Number two, it is so frustrating when. Number three, I wish. Number four, I am most compassionate about. And number five, I find information to improve my teaching. Here were my responses. If only my students could sing and play together again. It is so frustrating when I can't get a feel of what the future holds in the next two years of school. I wish I can diminish my multitasking. I am most passionate about my family and geeking out on new music technologies that have in the past intimidated me. I find information to improve my teaching by seeing what younger and newer teachers are producing. To conclude the thought journal, I'd like to share a story and sound recording that symbolizes my most meaningful thoughts for this week. For my recent private saxophone instruction, I introduced my 7th grade student to the song Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson. I played him an audio recording of a version sung by the Boys Choir of Harlem, which brought me back to when I sang the same arrangement in 12th grade with the Richmond Boys Choir. As we listened to the recording, I had a moment of shedding a few tears. It reminded me of the black audience members who proudly stood in unison when the Richmond Boys Choir performed the song. That was a powerful experience. And listening to it again helped lift my spirits not quite up, but moderately, even if it was only for a brief moment. I emotionally observed how the student took in a wealth of civic and musical knowledge from the historical context and current voicings of liberation for African Americans to learning new rhythmic notations and feeling the groove of a 6-8 time signature. Here's the recording of the Boys Choir of Harlem performing Lift Every Voice and Sing. (laughs) 
here's my interview with Paul Bakeman, conducted on June 9th, 2020. Okay, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Um, good. So, um... I'll just uh, go right into it. So I'm doing a podcast for my final project at VCU's Graduate Studies program. The project is titled, What are the Educational Processes of Independent Authors in Elementary General Music Education? Uh, The topic proposed for the research is to conduct interviews with music educators and authors such as yourself who have written, arranged music, performed, recorded, published, shared, and sold elementary general music resources to teachers in the educational marketplace. So uh, let's start off with um, where did you grow up and who were your early musical influences? And this can be artists and uh, music educators that changed your life. Okay. So I'm a native of Richmond, Virginia. Um, Yeah. I I grew up in (laughs) in the East End. My dad was an air traffic controller at the airport. Um, so we wanted to live, he wanted to live close to the airport. So I went to San, grew up in Sanston, um, went to Highland Springs high school, um, which they're currently rebuilding a brand new, uh, school. So that's kind of cool. Um, and, uh, yeah. So earliest influences for music, um, fifth grade, the band director came to our classroom and he was recruiting for, you know, kids to join the band. Uh-huh. <laughs> Put all the instruments on a big table. They're the and, heroes, man. I They're know, the heroes. Man. He played all of them. He demoed all the instruments. And when he got to the trombone and he went, I was like, sold. <laughs> I was like, man, that is, that is all me right there. What was, um, his, main in- what was his main instrument? You know, I want to say... It was saxophone, but I'm not mm-hmm. positive. Um, he, I, I don't remember him really playing anything other than demoing stuff, but like, I don't know that he had like a main instrument. So, yeah, interesting. Right on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then growing up, um, I know this is going to sound weird, but the first musical group that I got into in a big way, believe it or not, was Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. <laughs> right on. My parents had uh, yeah, my my parents had some LPs in the house and we had this big stereo. Um, and I used to hear them playing that music and I fell in love with it and started listening to a lot of Herb Alpert. So weird. And then right on. that kind of so was this seven years old, ten years old, right around that time you think? Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. like middle school, um, you know, so like 10, 11, maybe even a little bit before that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So nice. that was my main influence growing up was was Herb Alpert. And then from there, it kind of branched off into just, you know, straight ahead jazz, you know, like Miles Davis and Wynton Marsalis and people like that. Um, all the jazz, like the saxophone players and the, the pianists. And, you know, I started listening to all that stuff. So... Um, Did your then, middle school or high school have a jazz band that you joined? Yeah, so um, okay. there was a jazz band in the middle school um, that I I played in, and then in high school definitely played, you know, did the whole marching band, jazz band thing. So 
nice. And where did you go? I uh, went to Fairfield Middle School, in, All right. right there in Hollis Springs, and then Hollis uh-huh. Springs High School. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and um, I mean, I'm pretty sure solid programs during that time, and Ryko has like a lot of talented. They were, yeah. As well. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ron Joyner was the band director at Hollis, Hollis Springs High School, and it was a, you know, military like core style marching and um, yeah. Yeah, I high mean, stepping, was, high stepping marching, or uh, no, no, a, just okay. the normal um, like like core style, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it was a competitive uh, program. It was really good. Excellent. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so, um, can you please talk about your musical journey? Like topics could be your first and main instrument, doubles, um, undergrad experience at. Virginia Commonwealth University. Sure. Certainly would love to hear any uh, Doug Richards stories if he participated in Jazz Orchestra <laughs> 1. Because like, uh, I know Rusty Farmer mentioned you and was very, has, you know, high respects for you as well. So, oh, I mean, wow. just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so started off, you know, played the trombone. I'd been taking piano lessons as a kid, too. Uh, me and my sister both took lessons for a while. But then, you know... As kids often do, that that kind of became a drag, uh, mm-hmm. and I like I stopped playing, like taking lessons. Uh, but then, immediately, my interest went to electronic music and like synthesizers, and I was obsessed with that. So there was a birthday. I think I was like nine or ten, and my dad allowed me or he bought for me a Roland JX8P, which Uh, was one of the, it was one of the very first like polyphonic synthesizers. It could play eight notes at once. Uh, (laughs) And um, so I got that. I had a drum machine that was a Roland, uh, like a TS or TR 707 or something, 808. Um, One of the classic drum machines, which at at the time I didn't know it was going to become classic, you know, but it it did eventually. Um, Got had one of those had like a um, a little sequencer that was like a MIDI box that you hooked into the whole thing. Yeah. And so I started composing music and uh, writing tunes when I was in high school using that synthesizer and the drum machine. And uh, well, where would you record uh, these devices into? Did you record it into the Roland, or did you have a like a four track that you're plugging? So uh, these devices into it was a two track i think it was like a two track cassette deck <sighs> yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah it was like a it was a sharp cassette deck and i could i think i could do two tracks on it before it maxed out maybe or it might have been four tracks i'm not sure um but i, I did i made recordings onto that and um i remember i took the i took the cassette tape to my band director in high school and I let him listen to it. And I, and I used to actually also, like, you know, write out the charts for each instrument part. So I had, like, uh-huh. the bass part, like, I, on a, just, you know, like, manuscript paper, like, with pencil, yeah. you know? And I just wrote it, like, wrote all the music out, and I had all the charts. Um, and he listened to it and gave me some really good advice, and I kept, you know, trying to kind of tweaking that a little bit. Um so yeah, and then so that was my first introduction into like the electronic music stuff. And, well, like, I'm curious composing. where um, with composing, it, it seems like you. So did you 
um, record the track first, then you transcribed your um, what you recorded, or was it the other way around? Yeah, yeah, because the ideas came from just like noodling around on the keyboard, right you know? on, and like and like trying out different you know harmonies and chords and melodies and stuff, and I'd go, oh yeah, that's pretty cool. And then I'd come up with a bass line for it and then a drum part and then, you know, so... Yeah, well, that's yeah. very much the modern-day composer way of producing something right now because they would get on their DAW and then just record, record and do everything right there and, you know, insert it into, um, you know, uh, get, getting the MIDI files and having that mm -hmm. transported to... Um, mm -hmm a logic program or, or pro tools. And that's very, it seems that that's really cool. That's that you were pretty much ahead of the time. One of the <laughs> cats who were ahead of the time where, you know, normally the, you know, people would just record their stuff and then that's it. But you took the time to actually write out your part. So that's very hit, man. Yeah. I thought that was really yeah. important to actually have the paper charts, you know, like, yeah, I thought, you know, that that's like part of the whole experience. And then, um, yeah. The other thing, too, that I felt like at that time I was kind of at the beginning of that curve was this whole idea of MIDI, MIDIing stuff, you know, mm. because all those devices, they all MIDI together. And um, actually, my first car that I got in high school, it was a it was a Ford Mustang and uh -huh. the license plate was MIDI in <laughs> two different words, MIDI in. Because I was so into it, you know, yeah. and I remember like <laughs> I love you, Paul Bakeman. That's great. You're yeah. so cool. <laughs> I, I mean, if the people would stop me and be like, "What is yeah. MIDI?" and I'd have to explain, like, <laughs> you know, what is, and even to like musicians, you know, like people yeah. that were into music and people that were performing music didn't understand like what MIDI was, you know. And I had did they get sucked in, or did they, or did they just completely zone out oh, after it was the a first zone. minute? It was a zone out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was to they were totally zoned out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that was that was still like I felt like at the at the beginning of you know, people were starting to understand about the possibilities of electronic music and what what could be done with MIDI. Right on. It was really and cool. um yeah. so at VCU, uh what was that like? Were you um a performance major went straight to music ed or classical jazz bit of both. I mean, they have yeah. us doing both, which is one of the perks of the VCU program that they had both, um, um, whether a jazz player do classical, um, curriculum electives or whatever, and then vice versa. So yeah. What was your experience? Yeah. Like so there? I went in as a classical trombonist, um, and, and music ed. I, I knew, I knew at that time that I wanted to be a teacher um, right on. And believe it or not, at, when I was like, you know, basically my whole time there um, at VCU, I was the only studying classical trombonist. All the other guys were huh. jazz guys. Wow. So like, uh, I don't know if you know, like uh, Alvin Walker. Yeah. Um, Doug um, Basie Band. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Alvin went on to play with uh, with Count Basie Orchestra. Basie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, they were all jazz guys, and and they all played in like the wind ensemble with Doctor Austin because uh -huh. we did, there were no more classical players. I was the only one, you know. So they had to like convince the jazz guys to go over and play in the wind ensemble, you know. And what was uh, that interaction like? Having being the only classical trombonist, was that uh, a bit of work to? prove your um 
you know, your skills actually, that, you're, that you're in the pocket or was it no, communal, you know? Actually, yeah. it wasn't because I did all the jazz stuff too. So, right on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I took I took private lessons with, uh, did like a half hour jazz lesson with John Durth, actually. Um, <laughs> killer trumpet player from oh, Absolutely. I mean, uh, shoot. Um, and Skip Gales, too. I took some lessons with Skip and uh, did my private lesson with, um, you know, my classical trombone private lesson and then played in the wind ensemble and did um did that and then also played with doug you know with uh played in jazz work one and two and did small jazz group with bob hallahan oh wow that's a wealth of so, education right yeah, there so it was a very it seemed like a very broad you know like i was getting yeah. the classical stuff and the jazz stuff at all at the same time which was really great was that in the um was it the late 80s? Was, was that when yeah, you so I attended or VCU, early 90s? It would have been 89, and then I graduated in 94. Okay. So right right at the end of the 80s and you know early 90s. Is that the um, Alice Marcellus period you know, as I, well? Or? I didn't work with him. He When I was in high school, he came to my high school and did like a little artist-in-residence couple of days, you know. Um, but then by the time I got to VCU, he had already left. So mm-hmm. we just mm-hmm. kind of passed in the night, didn't quite make it. Yeah. Um, off tangent um, impression, um, just being in uh, in anything with Skip Gales, whether it's a private lesson or if it's jazz improv class, I just love it when some, you know, as each person does their course or so, I always just love it when he would go like, stop, just, just stop. <laughs> That sucked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, gosh, amazing teachers as well. So, um, and of course, you know, see. Doug Richards, very, uh, very demanding in his own way. But, you know, um, that in retrospect, I mean, it, it was difficult to be in Doug's groups because he was so demanding. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's what you want if you're truly learning. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you're truly trying to be the best player that you can be um, and interpret that music you want somebody like that who can really guide you and uh, and kind of raise the bar that you have to try to meet you know yeah I always felt that I always missed certain opportunities or I was at the wrong time or the wrong place where I still went to the program um, either it was I didn't make it around y'all's time or make it after I left because it seemed like all the cool things were happening, especially with Doug. But, uh, I only got to rehearse with him when, uh, I was in the greater Richmond high school jazz band and it was him and John when doing it together. But I still remember Doug, even with high school students, um, would just rehearse two bars of, uh, sweet Georgia Brown yeah, and singing it, playing it. And I want to say that took, really 45 minutes to an right. hour just doing it and i think it, i think all of us have just slightly have a we have a little bit of doug in us because we just have that we want that perfection <laughs> and to just to sound like just to sound like a band let's sound like a band so yeah uh, yeah yeah. He, <laughs> yeah he really was a really probably still is a perfectionist in every sense of the word and you know i'm grateful to him for that so so um 
How did you get into teaching elementary school music, and was it the first choice uh, for your full-time gig, and or like, did you picture yourself as a middle or a high school band director or touring musician? Yeah, so this is kind of a long story. I'll try to make it short. Um, but I oh, no, no. Uh, I think it's interesting. Milk it, so. man. This is, I, I love, this, is a con, this is what I love about podcasts. It's like converse, conversation piece yeah, versus being on a talk show. It's like, we only have three minutes, promote your stuff, and let's go. So it's just, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so I was a going to be a senior um, at VCU studying music ed. And uh, that cat we were just talking about, Alvin Walker, he was playing trombone um, for the Carnival Cruise Lines at that mm. time. And it was like a steady summer gig for him. Like every summer he would go and spend a couple months on the ship just playing. Well, he it was like toward the end of the semester and he was um, gearing up to go. And then something happened where he had like some kind of family emergency and he couldn't he couldn't do the gig. And mm-hmm. so he called the people at Carnival, and he said, hey, I've got a guy who could do this gig, like, sight unseen. You wouldn't even have to audition. His name's Paul. He's, you know, a good guy, da-da-da. Um, would you want him? And they said, yeah, at this late, mo- you know, late notice, we gotta, we got to have somebody, so we'll hire him. So it was like I had the job, you know. And then, so he told me that. And then, like, the next day, I get a message from Dr. Gerard. So Sandra Gerard, she was uh, head of the music ed program at that time. So she calls me into her office and she goes, hey, I got a call from uh, West Hampton Day School, which is like a daycare in Richmond. And they're looking for a music teacher for the summer. Oh, wow. And so that's and and they'll you know, they want to interview you and, and all that. So I was like, man. What do I do? I got the cruise gig, which yeah. seemed like awesome, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I then I have this like teaching opportunity for like elementary kids. Now at that time, I want to say I was definitely more on track to be like a high school band director. Like that's what I wanted to do because that was really my influence, and you know I was all about marching band and you know designing drills and marching you know shows and. That kind of that kind of thinking, you know, and so I thought about it for a couple of days, and I turned the cruise gig down, believe it or not, and took the teaching job. So I stayed in Richmond and uh, showed up at this daycare. They had like nothing. I mean, it was a room with like it was just four walls and a carpet, and that was my room. And I was like, "Are there any instruments or anything?" And they were like, "No, there's like nothing." <laughs> So I was like, okay, I got to make this work. So I went out and bought a guitar. It was my very first guitar. Um, and I like learned to D chord. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, That's I know the way D to chord. do it. And so the first kids came in, they were like the three-year-olds, you know, yeah. and it was like 10, 10 little three-year-olds. And so we sat on the floor and I, I did literally, it was like, the itsy bitsy spider just on a decor you know? <laughs> yeah and that was like day one you know and, and it went well you know i was like oh that, yeah. this is cool and so um you know every day i was like one step ahead of the kids i was like learning chords like as they were coming in you know and we're just doing different things we were like you know clicking sticks together and i didn't know what i was doing i hadn't even i didn't I hadn't student taught yet you know i hadn't really done any kind of practicum teaching nothing and so I was completely making it up, flying by the seat of my pants, so to speak. And um, 
when I, after I worked with that age group, I was like, oh, this, these kids are really cool, this elementary um, age. And that kind of put the bug in my head, like, maybe that would be fun to do. And then I did my student teaching. Um, I student taught with, uh, actually with Tom, with Tommy Anderson at Glen Allen Elementary. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was my first student teaching. Wow. Yeah. I have to talk, I have to ring him up and tell him that. That's pretty amazing, man. He's, he's a hero amongst all heroes when it comes to that gig. He's awesome. He's, you know, Trump fellow trombone player and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. So, um, yeah, we, we really hit it off. And, um, so I student taught there for eight weeks. And then my second placement was with Ron Simmons at Lee Davis high school Uh and had that experience. And then, you know, I was kind of like, I think I liked the elementary better than high school. And that's where I ended up. So it's amazing that that's been one of the top discussions every time I talk to any music educator who becomes a general ed teacher yeah. that the that the first path was because we've been trained I think it's because a ma- that majority of our memory we've been trained in middle and high school as like band directors and it's like this is what I know and we yeah. tend to forget how to be kids again and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's like oh mm-hmm. okay cool with this uh, you know hours are depending on where you're at hours are a little bit shorter or like uh don't have to really do marching band I have my weekends to myself but at the same time what I j- absolutely love about teaching uh the young younger ones or uh the 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 kids are that uh they will always give it their all you know right. the in middle school that they, they start to become timid and the confidence goes down singing the the singing the, the, their their projection doesn't come out anymore mm-hmm. and it's uh it's yeah. starting all over it really is start, but no right, it's like right. yeah that's really cool um yeah. so a co- a common phase uh phrase i'm sorry a common phrase that stuck with me uh, was when you humbly said that you're a jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, when it comes to <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when when it comes to and I and I still say that to people when they're like, you can play everything, jack of all trades, man. Of <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah right. I totally stole that. So yeah. uh, so what jack of all trades, master master of none when it comes to singing, doubling instruments, composing, arranging, and editing videos. Um, I admire this because uh, you've been a huge influence to myself and many of my general awesome. music friends sing your praises. Um, <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome, dude. And what what influenced you to keep learning and juggling instruments and technology? Um, well, the instrument thing, I mean, I think all good musicians should be able to play many instruments, you know? It, it might, you might not be, like you were just saying, you might not be a master of it, but... Um, you know, as we live our lives, we continue to grow and we continue to learn. And um, there's so many cool instruments out there that, uh, you know, I think <laughs> life is uh, too short to let them pass by. So um, nice. the, the more I can, uh, you know, learn new instruments, the better. Um, and, and I have to say, for me, mostly the instruments that I've learned how to play have come out of my responsibilities as a teacher. So like, you know, mm-hmm. learning to play the recorder, for example, I probably wouldn't have been a recorder player if I hadn't had, you know, had to teach it at school. Um, the guitar, you know, I learned to play guitar because I taught little kids how to sing, you know. Um, stuff like ukulele, which, you know, is my, kind of like my big thing now, as you know. Um, that came out of a school thing, too. So it's kind of like 
the, the teaching responsibilities have always pushed me into learning new instruments, you know, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. The technology piece of it, um, that stuck with me because of the, um, the recorder book that I wrote, uh, oh, yeah. connections. Yep. Um, so that, that came out of, um, you know, my first like year, first two years of teaching in Hanover, I was a brand new teacher and I was like, the, the teachers told me, you know, they're like, yeah, the, the fourth graders play recorder every year. And I, and I kind of knew that they, you know, somebody would play. Um, but I wasn't aware of any kind of curriculum for recorder. I didn't know what the kids did before or what they could do. And so I bought a curriculum that looked like it was popular, that people, a lot of music teachers used it. Was and it the purple book? Uh, like uh, it's uh, it's like a thin book that I know. No, it's John McAllister uses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a different one um, with like a red cover. So, okay. <laughs> um, so, but the thing that got me about that yeah. was, you know, you open it up and on page one, it's already introduced three notes on the first page, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, where's the pacing on this? It's way too fast, you know. And I tried yeah. teaching it that way, and the kids were completely lost. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this that's more paced out and slower and so i um i had purchased in the meantime i'd purchased another keyboard this was uh an insonic which i don't even think they're in business anymore of that company but <laughs> this was a this is a great keyboard it has a sequencer built into it and everything like 32 tracks just awesome i was i used to just nerd out on that thing so bad <laughs> um and i was like i kept thinking you know i'm gonna i'm gonna slow this down and i'm gonna write my own pieces for recorder for the kids to play along with. And uh, so the very first piece I wrote was called Recorder Mission. And it, you know, it's one song that uses one note, B, B note. It's like the only note in the whole song, it's the only thing they have to play. So um, the technology was vital to that whole process. And I just kept using that that sequencer um, and that keyboard to make, you know, tons of songs. And I... I still do it, although I use a DAW now instead of a, yeah, you know, actual hard keyboard. You know, I use the software instead. So, but yeah, that um, the technology's been a vital piece of my teaching all these years. Right on, and um, yeah. definitely going to get into recorder connections and uh, um, more technology in 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 this interview. Um, and uh, so. Man, I love your stories. Um, how did you catch the, how did you catch the Orv Shurik, um bug, and uh, how did you discover it? Yeah, so um, you know, at VCU, when you're a music ed person, they talk about the different methodologies. You know, like they'll they'll talk about what Orf is and Kodai and Dalcros mm-hmm. and the different ones. Yeah, um, they don't really push one on you because they want you to make up your own mind as as far as what you know is the most comfortable for you. Um, so I knew a little bit about ORF, but not, I mean, it was just what I had read in a book. That was all, you know, a couple of paragraphs. So I got to my school to Rural Point and started teaching. And um, there were about seven or eight ORF xylophones in the room. Um, uh-huh. And the other choice that I had was a music textbook series. It was like the Silver Burdett or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like from the 1970s. I mean, it, there were LPs that went with it. It wasn't even like cassettes awesome. or anything. It was, still had the albums, you know. Uh, and like I the love cover it. of the book was like, there were like kids in bell bottoms and stuff, you know. Um, 
And so I thought, okay, well, I can I can use the textbook series, or I've got some Orf instruments. Why don't I learn how to do that? You know, and then as luck would have it, um, you know, in your life when you look back at the very twisted road that our lives become after many years, you you see that there are certain crossroads that you get to, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't. You might not realize it at the time that you're at a crossroads. It only becomes evident later when you look back, and. I would say that my first year of teaching was a major crossroads for me in this whole ORF thing because um, one of my all-time hero teachers um, is a guy named Jimmy Hicks. I don't know if you know Jimmy. Um, He was the music teacher at Cold Harbor Elementary in Hanover Uh for many, many years. And uh, he knew that I was a first-year teacher. We had just met. And um, he, on a whim, he called me up and he was like, hey, man. I'm going to Philadelphia this year in November to the National ORF Conference. Do you want to go? We can, like, split a room and all that. And I was like, wait, there's a there's a, an ORF what? It's like there's an ORF <laughs> conference. It's like international, you know, like people come from all over the world. It's this big deal. And I was like, heck yes, you know, like, let's go. And I, I'll learn that. That was my first like foray into the world of ORF, like, and I started learning. So I went to this conference and there were people presenting like these master that, you know, I would get to know later on as master ORF teachers that I didn't realize who they were at that time. But, um, you know, Jim Solomon and, um, uh, 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 Carol King, not the, not the folk pianist, but a different Carol King, who's a big time ORF guru. Uh, I went to their sessions. They had, they brought in like an, all city Philadelphia ORF ensemble and they performed and man, I just wept, you know, I just cried. It was so beautiful. And I thought, this is how my life is going to go. I'm going to be an ORF guy, you know? And so I committed to it and, um, started taking the level classes. You know, I took a, took level one, actually that very first summer after my first year of teaching took level one. Um, I trained under Connie Saliba, um, who's one, who's definitely, one of the big ORF gurus, Connie Saliba, um, her teacher was Jos Vaituk. Jos's teacher was Carl Orff. <laughs> wow. Just passing uh, it down. So I'm like, I'm yeah. like third generation from, from <laughs> Orff himself, you know, <laughs> you know, always trace your lineage back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then it really stuck, you know, I started taking all the levels, did the master class and, um, you know, then started teaching levels some years later at VCU. Nice. So, yeah. Can you take us back uh, to your travels to Ghana, West Africa, and Hawaii, and what musical and cultural revelations did you experience from each destination? And also, uh, what was your proposal to receive travel funding from the REB Award for Teaching Excellence? Okay, so um, we'll start with just that REB thing, um, sure. and so it's a it's run by the Community Foundation. Um, their mission is to give money to teachers to travel and um, further their own interests. Um, it it should be something that you know you can bring back to the classroom, but that's really not their one hundred percent goal. It's more like, you know, what are you interested in as an educator? Um, and that's what we want you to go study. And so at that time, um, my big thing at school was starting to become, it was, it was drumming. It was all about drumming. Um, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I was starting to build up my drum collection at school. I, I think I was getting close to having a class set of, of djembes for everybody. Like, uh, you know, 25 djembes. I was getting close yeah. to that goal. Nice. Um, and so I uh, was put up for that award by some parents. And um, I made it through the first couple rounds. And then uh, it got to the point where they wanted to know, like, okay, if you won this, you know, what would you do? And I thought, well... Um, I, I would really love to learn more about drumming. And I was actually flipping through the Orf magazine. It's called the Orf Echo. Uh-huh. And I got, I was in the back looking at the back of the magazine and there was a little ad for, um, West Virginia university. They always take a group to Ghana every year, um, to specifically learn about African drumming and dance. And so I, uh, called them up and I said, you know, what's the price on this? How long is it? I got all the details wrote that into a proposal. Um, and then there was still some money left over after that was going to happen. And so I thought, well, if I could go to Africa, learn the basics of like, how did drumming start? You know, what is the core of drumming? Cause you know, that it all, that all that stuff came from Africa, from West Africa. Um, then what if I could extend that into a more community focused thing? So um, at that time, another thing that was starting to become popular were the drum circles, you know, where the people get together yeah. and they just groove in a circle, you know. Um, so I thought if I could marry those two ideas together, the, you know, the tradition with the community and bring those two things together, that would be a good proposal to write up. And so I um, figured out that um, this guy, Arthur Hall, He's the sort of like the the father of the American drum circle is how they refer to him. Um, he he did this workshop every year in Hawaii for a week, and he kind of trains you how to go out and like get people from the community that have like never even held a drum and like get a drum circle going with people like that. Um, and so the first summer, I, so I ended up getting the award, um, and then the first summer went to Africa studied that whole thing. I was there for almost a month in Ghana. Um, we had musicians coming to the hotel, um, doing shows almost every night. We had like private one-on-one lessons with like master drummers from the surrounding villages that would come over. Oh, wow. Just amazing. Yeah. Um, we just got immersed in that culture and we spent time in the bush, you know, in the small villages with them. And, um, just saw how the music was integral part of their lives and got to talk to children and went to school and got to see how they, how they learn and the desks and the room and everything. Um, it was really cool. And then, uh, the next summer did the Hawaii piece. Um, and that was one week, you know, literally on the beach with Arthur Hall. There was like 70 people from all over the world that came to that. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was intensive training for one week and just how to, like, you know, get people that have never drummed before and people that might not even consider themselves musicians or musical and say, no, 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 here's a drum. Here's how you hold it. Here's how you make a sound. Here's how to play a pattern, you know. Here's how to listen to the other people and make something cool happen. So um, it was a really cool like I said, like a marrying of those two ideas, the tradition and then the community put together. Now, the one downside I would say is the Africa piece um, was really hard to bring back to school. 
because it was so technical. Like, you know, we were learning specific, like culturally specific rhythms that were very like, you know, this on the downbeat and then on the end of one, you put a slap and on, on beat two, you put a open tone and on the end of two, it's a rim shot and da da da. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would learn patterns that way. And then to bring those back to like, you know, kindergartners, mm-hmm. it just, it really didn't translate very much. Um, you know, I did show them the drums. I showed them the, they listened to me play the patterns. I talked about the culture. I showed them videos of the people and the, some of the performances that I got to see in the pictures. And so I did disseminate it like that. But as far as, you know, like people always want to know, like, hey, man, when you went to Africa, did you teach the kids at your school how to play the African rhythms? And the answer is no, I, I didn't. Because, I mean, it was hard for me. You know, it was really hard for me <laughs> to learn those patterns. And, like, to teach them to, you know, a third grader would just be like, it's just too hard, you know. How did the um, uh, students perceive it in Africa, and what's the youngest that they would teach those rhythms to? Um, would would it be kindergarten, or would it be like fourth grade equivalent to fourth grade? And yeah, so so here's something that's going to kind of blow your mind. Mm-hmm. When the kids go to school, at least the school that I got to see in Africa, music was not part of the curriculum. Oh wow. Um. And the reason is not because they thought of music as being anything less than or they kind of pushed it aside. The reason that was explained to me is that music is such a part of their culture already. It would be like saying to a child in Africa, like it'd be like saying, hey, let's go to a class where we're going to teach you how to breathe. Mm. You know, like they, they already do music like so much in their um, like at home and with the kids on the street, like in the village. They're constantly like playing little games with rhythms and stuff like that. Now, mm-hmm. you can go to university like University of Ghana um, and study music. And that's where they like teach the theory and the oral training and, the you know, you learn how to play like Western classical instruments and stuff like that. But like, but like, you know, daily life in the village is not like, they don't teach music classes there because like I said, it's like, they don't, they don't consider it to be like something that stands apart from their normal life. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I guess you're so immersed. They're so um, immersed in it. It's just like that. Yeah. It's like, well, we need need a little break now. Yeah. 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 So, one of the more fascinating things that I saw in school um, was they had a whole, like an hour where they went outside, boys and girls, they had this huge rock pile and the kids would take baskets, put them on their heads and they had the baskets filled with rocks and they practiced uh-huh. walking in this field back and forth, balancing the basket on their head with rocks. Um, yeah. And that leads, that's like a life skill, you know, if they have a baby or whatever, you know, they're uh-huh. shopping in the market and they put their stuff in the uh, basket on their head so they can still hold the baby, you know? <laughs> That's pretty amazing that, that they start that young to yeah. uh, practice that skill. Because you would see, I mean, I would see it in documentaries and all like, oh, hey, a woman carrying a basket and a baby. But like, right, wow, right. you'd never th- have thought about the process <laughs> of uh, yeah, you know, they, training for that. I mean. <laughs> yeah, they actually do it. They actually practice it in school. And um, 
<laughs> Something else I wanted to say too about the the music, um, the the instrument playing, like the master drummer, for example, or like the mm-hmm. little group of drummers in a village, um, that's like a, considered to be a very coveted and like highly respected position. Um, you you are if you're a kid um, in the village and you get somehow tapped to be a musician, they will take you under their wing and start training you in in how to play the rhythms. The Mm. first thing that you learn how to do if you're a young kid is to play the clave. Uh, And you do it on a bell, not on a, not on the wooden claves, but it's like on a, it's like a gangokui. It's like a double, a double bell. Uh Um, And the kid that is tapped for that is considered to be one of the most, like stable, centered, focused kids in the village. Like a kid that doesn't have a lot of drama, that doesn't get emotional about things, that is kind of reserved and quiet and listens. Because if you can't hold the clave down, then it throws everything else off the bell. Because like the the drummers, the the, the adult drummers are listening to the clave and Mm -hmm. they're taking what they do off of that pattern. Um, so that kid trains in that position for like seven, eight years. They are the bell player and they learn all the variations of the clave. If they're good enough, then they move on. They might become a djembe player and they, and they start training like master drummer, you know, master drumming patterns and stuff like that. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you just you just stay as the bell player. So well, talk talk about being intense. the mas- talk about being the master timekeeper at such a young age. I mean, that's man, that's really soulful right there. It's I mean, so that whole good, process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Gosh. everybody needs a little bit of that training. You know, just yeah. like like, can you play the clavier pattern and not speed up? You yeah, know, that's like yeah. that seems to be so many people's hang up is they rush everything, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, it's like, dang, it's stop rushing all the time. It's so funny. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I've seen several videos that you've put with uh, your children, and I, I know I kind of like do uh, something similar. <laughs> where I'm like, all right, you're gonna um, have the uh, fuche or uh, the um, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, just play just quarter notes right there. Just quarter right. notes. Yeah, right. <laughs> just keep that right. time for us. That's that's all yeah. I need from you. So exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, um, the, and the kids get yeah. bummed out, and they're like, "Oh, that's such a simple thing." I'm like, "No, no, no. This is the most important oh. thing." So, yeah. so don't screw this up. You know. Yeah. You, don't be bored. Just keep right, on exactly. locking that in. Yeah. So, uh, what software do you use for music notation um, when you're writing a lesson book or um, uh, and also software for audio and video editing as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I started off with uh, using Finale and then I used Finale for years and actually did the original recorder book on f- using Finale. Oh, cool. And then somebody, um, somebody talked me out of it and told me that Sibelius was better. And so, same deal, man. Same yeah. Deal. And so I <laughs> bought weird. Sibelius and like yeah. learned how to use Sibelius and learn and yeah. use that for a couple years. And then when I wrote the book um, that I published with Brent Hall with Beaten Path Publishing, yeah. Cooking uh, that with book Marimbas. is called um, it's called um, 
Cooking with Marines. Cooking, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so on that one, um, Brent actually convinced me to go back to Finale because his whole setup for Beaten Path is all using Finale files. And so um, he would. it was going to just be hard to, you know, for me to submit Sibelius files to him and have to convert them over. They don't always convert 100%, you know, accurately, so... Yeah, with the XML deal yeah, where you have to like. So yeah. I went ahead and switched. I switched back to Finale, and I had to look back. So I'm back back on Finale now. Yeah. And was that because Brent wanted uh, to be able to edit certain things uh, that you sent yeah, him? Yeah, he, okay. yeah. He functions as the editor, the music editor. Um, so he wanted to just to be able to manipulate those files how he mm. wanted to and all that. So, yeah. Um, as far as audio. Um, programs go i'm a i have pc um you know hardware so there's a program that's called mixcraft i don't know if you've ever heard of that one or ever used it um but uh that's the current i use that that for audio like for podcasting and stuff like that it's all it's all mixcraft um it's kind of like a souped up version of audacity you know yeah Um, yeah it, there's really nothing that I've thought of that I wanted to do that that Mixcraft can't handle. You know, it's it's real powerful. Yeah, um, whatever works. Yeah. And, yeah and do they and then, keep up with their up, updates at all with Mixcraft? Yeah, um, they do. They do. Yeah. Yeah, and I was impressed. The last um, version which I have is version nine of Mixcraft. I think that, that there may be a ten or eleven now, but um, the last version nine actually came with Melodyne. As a free plugin, I don't know if you've ever used Melodyne before, but uh, I've heard it, of like, it. It's like kind of like an autocorrect. So, huh, like if you have a okay. singer and they're a little bit off pitch, you can actually take the waveform and drag it up and down, and it changes the pitch like on the fly. Oh, that's nice. So that way, you don't have to like do the entire track. You just choose. You can do little spots. tiny pieces of that's somebody's cool. vocal and like tweak their pitch like just by like microtones, you know. Nice. It's really, yeah, it's really cool. I was like, man, this is awesome. So um, I haven't really used that because, uh, I don't know, I don't really record singing too much. But um, And definitely want to geek out on your latest lip dub, Mr. Blue Sky. So was what, what, oh, um, yeah. well, what was the process for that and what um, software did you use to So um, video um, editing software, I use PowerDirector, um, which is a great program for PCs. Um, it's similar... You know, I think to um, uh, not not iMovie. What's the Apple um, Log- um, Logic? <laughs> yeah, it's similar Logic to Pro. that. I mean, it's really powerful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does all of the um, split screen, picture in picture, um, all of the the uh, green screen effects, the whole deal. Um, and you know, I'm really. I really enjoyed Power Director, so that's that's really nice. Yeah, and as as far you're, as the you're process, one of the yeah, oh, I was just gonna say you're 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 one of the rare um, uh, musicians that I know who's not an Apple. Um, yeah, weird. <laughs> an, huh? an Apple, <laughs> uh, an, an Apple guru. Where when they, right. you know, I was like, wow, because I've, I've I've always been straight up always Apple, always Apple. But like that's pretty amazing that you've learned how to adapt with um, a PC, yeah. and it seems like you're very very fluent and happy with it. That's cool. Yeah, and I, I will yeah. blame that on my love of flight simulators. <laughs> I actually ended up getting my pilot's license back in uh, like 98, I think. Um, and then I stopped flying when I went back to VCU to get my master's because it was just too expensive, you know, to fly just for a hobby. 
and that's when I discovered the whole world of Flight Simulator. Yeah, and that's yeah. all that's all like Microsoft PC based stuff, you know. So I always would always buy PC so I could keep up with my flight sim addiction, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I played Honer Speedy Harmonicas when I was in third grade and continued to teach the instrument to my students. Uh, one of my favorite Paul Bakeman sightings is when I see your lessons attached to um, the Honer Kids instrument series, um, ranging from percussion to harmonica. Um, later on, I'll cut to show um, a picture of like John McAllister's Facebook post where I, I believe this was at the Country Music Hall of Fame where he, had, he saw one of oh, your yeah. packages. But uh, how did the That's Honer cool. Harmonica... Ca- how did... <laughs> How did the Honer Harmonica connection come about, and what was the process of putting those lessons together, starting from scratch and ending with yeah, so, uh, the finished um, prod- product? Yeah, I got to be really good friends with Tim Henry from, uh, he actually works for Sonar. Um, Sonar is a subsidiary, or I guess a partner company with Honer, and yeah. um, they used to have a distribution warehouse right here in uh, in Ashland, yeah, like yeah, the near, area. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I would go and sort of consult with them. Like whenever they had like a new line of ORF instruments come over from Germany from the factory, I would go and kind of like, you know, they wanted like an actual music teacher to test them out and like check for intonation and tone quality and stuff like that. So I would go over and, you know, there'd be all like a room full of suits and they'd be listening and I'd, you know, play the different instruments and say, you know, this one's okay. This one's a little out of tune, da, da, da. It always would always be like, you know, factory prototypes. Uh-huh. Um, they had that line of, of instruments that the ones you're talking about, where it's like little packages of like little maracas and harmonicas and it's and, like um, two and up or three and shakers. up. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah. for little kids, you know, like a yeah. little, very primary thing. Um, so Tim Henry called me up and he said, Hey, we want to update the inserts that are in these things. And would you be willing to uh, do that for us? And I said, yeah. And, uh, you know, they paid me and. I took a couple of months and just kind of rewrote all those little lessons and um, they yeah. put them out. So, yeah, every now and again, I still will stumble across one of those. I was down actually um, in Carytown at World of Mirth. It was like the toy oh, yeah. store down in Carytown. Yeah. Yeah, yep, I was yep. down there a couple of months ago before the uh, pandemic hit and mm-hmm. um, was looking through some stuff. And, and sure enough, there it was hanging on the rack. I'm like, Hey, I'm still in here. You know? So. Yeah. That's the legacy, man. The Paul Bacon yeah. legacy. And, um, it's really yeah, I was cool. going to ask, I was going to ask you, what was there a certain type of compensation, whether it be free instruments or currency, but it seems like that, that, that was really cool that it was, it was, uh, just, you know, just straight up. They just paid me. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. 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 yeah it was nice. And, yeah. Nice. And, uh, what were the, so this is going into the whole, uh, um, publishing part right now. So what were the creative and administrative processes of publishing um, recorder connections and cooking with marimbas? Also, when did you first meet Brent Hall? And uh, can you discuss the behind the scenes of being one of his composers for Beaten Path publications? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with recorder connections. That was my first, um, well, it's my, I only have two books out published. That's That was the first one. Um, I was actually working on my master's at VCU in music ed and um we could have chosen to do like a thesis or uh, a, a special project. And so I had this recorder book that was kind of in like the primordial stages. Like it really wasn't like finalized or edited or anything. It was pretty rough. And um, I went to the VCU folks and said, 
I think I'd like to do a master's project and I have this recorder book I've been working on. I think I just want to dedicate some time and this will be my project. It's just to get it to where it's like, you know, publishable. So it's like, you know, nice. fully edited and it's tweaked and all the typos are out and it's logical and in order and everything. And so I spent like, you know, an entire semester, uh, working on it, um, getting it all ready. And, uh, I uh, started my own company. It's called uh, Butterbean Publishing. And so Recorder Connections is published by that, my own company, Butterbean. Um, so it's just self-published. So Butterbean as in like Rusty's Butterbean Jazz Quartet? Like the Butterbean Jazz okay, Quartet. Cool. Right, exactly. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Butterbean Publishing. And um, so, yeah. And then what, what kind of got it out into the world was um, – this is another kind of a long story, but... Oh, no, the, no, that's what I... Yeah, please. Yeah, <laughs> one of my teacher friends at school, she was a third grade teacher. Um, she ended up moving to Northern Virginia with her husband, um, who got a job up there. And she was still teaching. And then we got word that she had um, some sort of cancer, like in her nasal passages, believe it or not. Mm. Um and it was getting into her brain. And so in very short order, she actually passed away. And we got the word. And, and we were just devastated at school. You know, this was a girl that we were really good friends with. And yeah. um, the day that I got the email that said that she had passed away, I made a decision that, I, you know, sometimes it happens when somebody that you know passes away, you think to yourself, you know, I can't let my life slip me by. I have to pretend like every day is my last day. You know, oh, yeah. and I have to take yeah. risks and go out on a limb and try things. So I, um, that very afternoon, I sent an email to the um, educational consultant at West Music. And yeah. I just said, hey, I'm, you know, music teacher in Virginia. I've got this recorder book that some people have been using and they seem to like it. Would you guys want to um, distribute it for me? And she said, yeah, send me a copy and we'll take a look at it. And uh, they said yes. And so that's how my recorder book kind of got out beyond, you know, the, the kind of like the constraints of the Richmond area. It's kind of out, you know, sort of nationally and um, getting more coverage, I guess. Well, I mean, uh, when I did search, well, your name, uh, that seems very stocky, but like yeah. when, I, when I searched your name, uh, that was one of the few uh, pages that did pop up your uh, recorded connections on the West Music website. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's very cool. And did, uh, as far as the reproduction of it, do you have to like Xerox everything yourself and send it, or do they have like a template already where they can burn the CD and have and package it? Because, like, out of all the recorder um, uh, startup books, yours is by far, and I record, and I, I did call you up on this. Yours is by far the best. I mean, oh, it's just, it's thanks, not man. to the point where I have to tell the kids, like, stop, stop, or just like every single minute. It was like, it's so clear, it's so concise, it's so smooth, especially for an instrument that sounds like you're drowning cats. I mean, so, I yeah, mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's perfect. Yeah. But I, I'm sorry, I, I veered so far into tangent land right there. So, I mean, what, so, um, as far as re, re, uh, reproducing it, what's the process of that like? Yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's a really organic process. I take the originals to like, um, office max, you know, and you <laughs> know, awesome. and I, I yeah. yeah. And I pay for them to copy and bind it, you know, um, yeah. and that's just overhead, you know, that's just money that I, it's just out of my own 
pocket. It's actually out of Butterbean's pocket. Um, and then uh, I send them to West Music and they sell them. But so they want them already done. You know, when they get to West, they want to be yeah. able to like immediately turn around and like put it on a truck and send it out to whatever customer. They don't actually stock mm-hmm. anything at West. So like they don't stock my book. So mm-hmm. I get like, you know, a, it's very sporadic. Like every other month or something, I'll get an order, you know, five books or 10 books mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. It just kind of trickles in. Um, as far as the recordings go, I get those made here in town too. There's a company called Revolve. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I send them the master tracks and they make, they like make a spindle like of like a hundred CDs, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm actually going to get away from the CDs. I think in the next, um, like the next iteration of the West catalog that comes out next year, yeah. I'm going to take those CDs away and just put like a, you know, put the, put a website in the book and with like a password mm-hmm. and people can just download the MP3s for free. I feel yeah, like CDs what, uh, are becoming sort of obsolete yeah. in a way, you know? Yeah, I mean that's so, what Artie Almeida does. She does uh, Artie Almeida. How she would like uh, yeah. just even her latest book. She sends you because most of the lessons are like copyrighted material. She would just send you a playlist of um, the Spotify playlist link, um, which I thought was really cool. Before we get into um, uh, cooking with marimbas, I just wanted to share yeah. with you a video. Of my students doing Cup of Joe and uh, <laughs> nice. and uh, you know it's it's their interpretation. We did our, the best we could, and uh, hopefully, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, let me just share that. Yeah, real quick. yeah, okay. Cool. You should see a black void. So I uh, do. I see it. Yeah. that in though. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, man, yeah. my hands hurt now. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the last round. I think yeah. this is the last round, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. 
Yeah, yeah thanks, man. Thank you. That. Thank you for putting. And I know in your um, in your book right here, uh, the, the directions were start with all parts, play four times through. And I, I just went with that whole route of just you know layering in, you know, yeah. la- just layering it. I yeah, mean, yeah. let's see. Yeah, and it's um, still getting used to the whole orf concept of trying to start at the same time. And I did that with um, Brent's piece from his ensemble book as well. But oh, like, yeah. um, so. Um, Meeting Brett for the first time, how was that? Uh, what was that vibe like? Yeah, so and, I met him at an ORF conference, actually. We uh, went to the same session, and I ended up sitting next to him. It was like a drumming thing, and we started talking. And um, several years later, at VCU, they were kicking around this idea of starting a uh, ORF Level 1 teacher training course. And uh-huh. um, I was brought in as the recorder uh, teacher, and it was solely because of my recorder book. Um, that's the, killer the, dude the VCU people it was Dr. Dr. Um, Greenoggle actually he knew that I had this recorder book out there and he was like well Paul must be a good recorder teacher because he has a recorder book so why don't we huh? you know and AOSA was like okay sure well he can play he can teach recorder um, so I came in and um, Dave Greenoggle was asking me about you know good ORF teachers in the area like who did I know of and um, I had heard about Brent, you know, from other people and um, knew that he was a, an excellent, you know, ORF level teacher. And so I recommended him. And uh, Dave Greenagle actually knew him already, too, for I think maybe through a course he taught at JMU, I think. Um, uh-huh. So there was that connection, you know, and it was kind of a no brainer. And uh, Dave Greenagle was like, yeah, let's let's get Brent. And Brent agreed to it. And uh, off to the races we went. So, um, and then the, the cooking with marimbas thing, um, you know, I had been writing pieces for my own ORF ensemble at school. It was kind of like, kind of like the recorder book where I thought, you know, I can, I can write my own ORF pieces for these kids instead of always using pieces from books, you know, that you buy. And, um, so I started writing, you know, over many, many years and just collected, you know, those pieces over, you know, 10, 15 years of writing stuff. And then finally I had enough pieces where I thought, you know, this, this could be a book, you know, and I just, um, just on a whim, just took a chance and I emailed Brent and I said, Hey, I've got some pieces. What do you think? And he said, yeah, I said, send them to me. Let me look at them. And he dug them and, uh, that was history. You know, we made the book. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, are you working on a, pu- on publishing a ukulele resource book soon? Like, uh, with, uh, since you're with the Midnight Ukulele Society yeah, and um, I, I all have that. Not, I have not thought about a ukulele book, actually. I think the problem with that is it seems like the market is really, like, getting saturated with a lot of ukulele books lately. Yeah. Even so, Hal Leonard mentioned that. The yeah. co-president of Hal Leonard said, yeah, we have way too many ukulele books. Yeah, so, yeah, it just seems like a niche that's not really, really needs to be filled right now, so... Um, I'm going to kind of let that one slide, you know, I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, have you seen uh, professional developments such as attending music conferences gone down? And if yes, uh, why are schools una- unable to fund them? And um, I th- kind of think it as a touring indie musician where the clinicians who have published resources um, and who would like to sell them, uh, they would like to sell them to the participants after the presentation. So, I mean, I, I mean, I've only done several conferences, but uh, in your 
um, experience. Have you seen that as a thing um, with participation? I think if you ask the powers that be, like an AOSA or VMEA, the the Virginia mm-hmm. Music Educator Association, they might tell you that conference attendance is going down. My experience is that it seems to, from my perspective, seems to always be pretty crowded. Um, yeah. I know I, I attended the VMEA conference last year, actually presented there, and the room was, I mean, you couldn't even get into the room. It was standing room only. Yeah. Um, so it seemed to be pretty packed. Um, I hope that's the case. You know, I hope that they're still being well-funded and well-attended. Um, as far as, you know, teachers not being able to go because they're not given the, the money to do so from their, you know, principals of their counties, um, that may be the case, especially as we enter back into school with, uh, budgets being so tight. I know that, you know, going to conferences might be, the very last thing on a principal's mind as far as funding things go um, because of yeah. what the pandemic has done. But, um, you know, I, I can only speak from my personal experience and my, I've had many principals over the years and they all have seen the value um, in sending their teachers to conferences. So, mm. you know, knock on wood that that will still continue because I think some of the greatest learning that I've done in the past has been through, attending conferences and and now i'm kind of transitioning to being the presenter at these conferences you know that's kind of like the next area that i want to push into um so i hope that they still happen because i know vmea is going online this year they're going totally virtual they canceled the uh oh wow they canceled the, the conference so I guess this will lead into my uh, next question, which is uh, my friend Phil Brooks, who's a music teacher at Hopkins Road Elementary School I know in Phillip, Chesterfield yeah. County. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were uh, um, classmates uh, when we went to VCU together. Um, nice. And um, he's a big fan of yours as well and loves Recorder Connections. Uh, he awesome. sent me a question to ask you. Um, what do you see as the biggest challenge for elementary music teachers as schools reopen post-COVID? <sighs> I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, as we've been talking today, the governor is at two o'clock. He was announcing something about schools. So I'm anxious to um, when we're done, I'm anxious to see what he's going to say about that. Um, My my worst fear going in, going back is if music and the arts in general are perceived as just less than important, you know, and that maybe, you know, instead of saying, hey, Paul, do your music thing and and be the music teacher, it could be, you know, hey, Paul, um, help teach reading or help teach math virtually or something like that, you know, and uh, I just don't know what that scene is going to look like once we get back. Honestly, I'm really scared, um, you know, looking at some of these, uh, CDC guidelines that are coming out as far as, yeah. you know, like what a classroom would look like. There was one line in, in a graphic that I saw from the CDC, and it said something about um, classrooms should remain static, meaning that the kids go to school, they go to one room, and they're with one teacher all day. They don't go out. They don't, they don't have other teachers coming in. Um, Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that erases 
everything, it, it erases the way that I've taught for 26 years, you know, with classes coming into my room. I mean, I've had mm. some situations where I've had to teach on a cart at some other schools. I'd yeah. be willing to, to try that if I was allowed to. But if they, if they hold tight to this whole thing about static teaching and static classrooms, I mean, they're not going to let me in to teach a music lesson. So, well, that you know, that's news um, to me because that's that's news to me because that's what uh, the lower school has been discussing from our end. Like, we're not going to have students um, come to your classroom. It's going to be like you know having a cart and going, going to their rooms. But now, now this is yeah, man. News changes every four hours, man. It's I insane. Tell you, like, every, it's it's insane. just yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to get too worked up because if you yeah. If you worry about it, I mean, there's nothing really we can do until we know what's going to happen. So, um, yeah. And um, honestly, on I'm a just bright, scared. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, on a right now, and I'll try to end it with this. Uh, we're now in a world where online lessons are being produced by do-it-yourself music educators who uh, share their independently created free and paid resources through social media, uh, video platforms, and teacher community sites. Um, I'm a fan of your video lessons that you shared and would like to geek out on some of them with you. Uh, and yeah. just to see if I can get your reactions and feel free to commentate. Okay. Uh, so this first one, um, let's see here. This first one's uh, rhythm challenge. Number two <laughs> set to uh, modern groove syndicate, yeah. um, Richmond based band. I still have to share this with Daniel Clark and Todd Harrington to see what their uh, <laughs> feedback yeah. is. I'm sure they'll love it. So uh, I'll turn this down a little bit. So how did this one come about? Um, I was just trying to get, I was trying to think of ways for the kids at school to express rhythm, to express rhythms in a more fluent way. Um, you know, instead of just doing rhythms like in isolation, like ta ta ti ti ta. Okay, here's another one. You know, let's read this one. I wanted it to yeah. be more of a like sequence of rhythms. You know, where it's almost like a piece, like a musical piece. And so this gives them, you know, it gives them four beats to like look at it and think about it, and then they have to execute it. You know, and it's just a more fluent, like a more musical way to do rhythms as opposed to just like one at a time out of context, you know? Yeah, and <clears throat> I know, uh, again, my students are huge fans of that because, of course, uh, just playing to the time where you have the memes and, um, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, any anytime you have Star Wars, it's oh, perfect. Yeah, and um, so uh, and this one right here is your caveman rhythm oh, activity yeah. right here that you uh, did recently. Uh-huh. Um, and again, I thought it was just genius how you incorporate nature. <laughs> rest. Rest. All right. I'm going to make another one here. Let's <laughs> yeah. put it right on top. I figured the kids right, are at home. The They've got time to go outside. It's safe, you know. And let's do another ta. They can find this and stuff in their backyard probably. And they've got a driveway. They can... You know, go to town and make rhythms outside, like a, like a caveman would do. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and what's what? So was this just a recent lesson that you came up with, just all of a sudden, or was this done before? This was just, oh yeah. Actually, that caveman rhythm thing I've been doing for years and years at school, um, because during the SOL testing, my uh -huh. room is like in the middle of the third grade hallway, 
And so yeah. when SOL testing starts at my school, I have to like shut down. Like I have to be quiet. I can't make, I can't play the piano. I can't sing in my room, play orphan instruments. <laughs> and so I was taking kids outside for music class, you know, just to get them away from the building. And I thought, what, there's got to be something I can do outside that's musically valid and, and a good lesson. And that idea just occurred to me, like, we can make rhythms on the sidewalk, you know? And so I send the kids out. I give them, like, 10 minutes. They have to gather up their sticks and rocks, and they, they spend some time making rhythms on the sidewalk. I go around to each kid with a hand drum, and I just give them the frame drum and say, okay, now play it for me. And I kind of, like, check them off, you know? And if they can play it and it makes sense and it make, fits the rules and all that, then they've succeeded in the lesson, you know? So amazing. I thought when the pandemic hit, I thought that would be a good lesson that would transfer to like a home setting, you know, where they could just easily do that at home. So nice. Well, um, Paul Bakeman, thank you so much for your time, your gift to this world. Oh man. Um, yeah, seriously, man. As and, are um, you, Samson, as are you. You uh, continue thanks, to be, man. you continue to like knock people's socks off with everything that you do. I saw a couple of videos that you did. The, uh, was it the wash your hands one? And then, uh, oh, yeah, the music K8 yeah, one. Yeah. And, and, the, and uh, the most recent one, um, ain't uh, no mountain high. Oh, ain't no mountain high. Enough. That's right. Yeah. Was, yeah. That was amazing. John McAllister like talks about you every time I see him. So, Oh, thanks. Man. Yeah, I know <laughs> that one was, I, I, I'll, I'll geek with, with you about that just very slightly. That yeah. particular one, the first one was easy because it was just, you know, lip syncing. That, that's fine. Right, the, the, right. The, the following one was like, they, okay, so like, uh, they somewhat know the song. Let's try to see if they can do it in harmony and see if they can do it with this technology. And it's just a complete opposite of the way we were trained to like, you need a good microphone. You have to be close to the microphone. It's just, it really right. was just balls to the wall. Like, let's see what happens. And the biggest challenge was to, to just mix roughly 40 tracks to make it sound great. And uh, yeah, just have fun with, uh, it, it was the second time using logic and uh, final cut pro for me. Like I, yeah. I was just depending on my iMovie skills and it was, it was, it was it, it's, it's cool in our position where we get, uh, as musicians, you know, getting compensated to learn right, <laughs> new, right. a new trade. And, yeah. you know, um, but once again, Paul, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, take care, be safe, and uh, yeah, you're the man. Love love to you. So, okay, yeah. yeah. Take cool. care, Samson. Thanks, man. Take care, Paul. Right. Bye. Bye. My thanks to Paul Bakeman for that delightful interview. Learned so much and just feel this kindred spirit from him. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. On the next Music Ed, my guest will be Brent Hull, who is the owner of Beaten Path Publications, a publishing house that distributes offshore resources to classroom music teachers. My thanks again to Paul Bakeman for just being the man and for his time and knowledge. I'm Samson Trin. Thank you for listening to Music Ed.